Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Father and our God being here on tonight in the first of these discussions, wilt thou bless us? For we know that we live in critical times. We know that the times are not what they ought to be. But O oh Lord, wilt thou restore to this nation as Christian heritage, as Christian testimony, that we might speak boldly from the vantage point of Scripture to all the issues of the day. And so with this in view, we pray unto thee that thou enlighten our minds, open our hearts. Use our tongue, use our minds for the glory of thine own Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> I should tell you something more about myself. I was originally trained in American constitutional history. <clears throat> I, I have been involved in several presidential campaigns and local campaigns, the North Carolina campaign, <clears throat> in, in direct politics. I have been advisor to a senator to a Senate committee, the Smith-McCarran Committee, which was a, a subcommittee of the Federal Senate Committee on, on the Judiciary. I served as advisor to Senator Will Smith and Senator Pat McCarran for two years. <clears throat> I have personally worked with Jesse Helms and do help him and advise him on certain occasions. <clears throat> I wrote for him. I wrote material for him for his book. With my permission, he used that. I don't mean that. So that the <clears throat> I have had I've had connections with politics all my life. I first came up with Strom Thurmond in 1948, and he's a close friend of our family. I know him well. I know Jesse Helms well. I knew Senator Smith well until he died. There's no connection between my knowing him and his death, however. <coughs> uh, he worked too hard and died of a heart attack. And um, I, I, I don't know how many different political campaigns I've worked in. Um, and... Uh, so I have uh, seen the I've seen the practical side of American political life. Um, I also worked uh, for the Pearl Harbor Investigating Commission, uh, a committee of Congress. <coughs> I actually did the work in the military rather than Congress itself, but I did the same type of work. Um, uh, during the war, I was the area director for the War Manpower Commission. Uh, there was, uh, the, the head of that was an Indiana drunk by the name of Paul McNutt. <clears throat> and between him and I was one of, I don't know, I think probably, I don't know, about 30 or 40 area directors. And um, between him and us, there was sort of a, a field officer who had stood between the, the area directors and Paul McNutt. Uh, it was part of the federal bureaucracy. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> in 1943, I forget the date, but the Saturday Evening Post came out with, a, with one of its cartoons. <laughs> <clears throat> making fun of the War Manpower Commission. And here's the setting. There's a farmer sitting out in his front lawn, and he has a, a, one of these uh, sewing machines that you use with your feet, you know. And he had, <clears throat> he had about three different wires attached to it each year. He had uh, five wires to each finger, uh, 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 ten wires to his hands, 
and he had ten wires to his toes, <coughs> and he had a harness on, he had wires coming out here, <coughs> and uh, in other words, he was a collection of wires, and he was trying to unbreak the whole farm with these wires attached to his head, and the, the, the farm, the, uh, the War Man Power Commission member came out and said, are you in need of help? <coughs> No, he, he was doing the whole thing by himself, which is just a ridiculous question. Now, obviously, he did. Um, and he did need help. <coughs> and uh, I did everything from, uh, from, well, I guess I shouldn't say it, but hiring a former FBI man to spy on an army installation to see what they were doing wrong and flooding. <coughs> that was a very brave and stupid thing to do, but I got away with it. And uh, working with a general who got shot, not in war, but by an irate farmer whose daughter he had violated and the farmer uh, got on a shotgun and thought he was hunting squirrels or bear and his aim was right good. <clears throat> the man wasn't killed but they did, the farmer did have to move him. Um, he would have been and um, I had all sorts of experiences like that. Uh, working with hierarchy in the bureaucracy in Washington was a great education. Working for the War Man Power Commission <clears throat> was a graduate course in itself. I stood for three years and when I wanted to get out, uh, I got out, they, they let me go. Well, they didn't let me go, uh, but they transferred me. When I told my superior I wanted to get out of it, he said, well, if you do, they'll draft you in the army. I looked at him in the eye and I said, to him, I said, uh, can you, can I agree that, can you guarantee that? He says, no, I don't think I can, uh, which is typical. Uh, but um, they realized that I was utterly fed up with it. I was utterly disgusted. <coughs> the, corruption, the corruption was unbelievable. And the incompetence, the insurmountable. Uh, uh, government bureaucracies are inherently uh, corruptible and inherently incompetent. Uh, I don't mean everybody in them is, can they? Well, those that don't become incorrect end up with the mental case. She's <laughs> not there either. <clears throat> but I should say, I worked with one general who was a good man. <clears throat> he was above corruption, and I really got along well with him. Um, all I'm trying to do is simply tell you that I've had experience in, in the practical affairs of government and in the, uh, well, in the political aspect of government. And uh, I survived it. I, I got out before I got corrupted, and I got out before I became mentally ill. But if I stayed with the, with the Pearl Harbor Commission, I would have gone that. Um, one of my friends, <coughs> then I won't mention, they taught English at the, at the College of Charleston, uh, and a, very, a, a member of a very, very ancient, old, and honorable Prussian family had been drafted into the army. And after they got him in, they gave him a psychic test, and, you know, and they discovered they'd made a mistake. But army-like, they would never admit it. But they did decide he couldn't go into active warfare. So they, they put him down where I worked. We worked in a submarine vault under, well, under the under land. It wasn't underwater, but it was a, it was a vault under down deep. And uh, at the entrance, they had armed guards. <clears throat> and they, they, do, they did tell you what, you what they did to you when you go in the airplane there. They, they pictured everything you had on and everything was on you. And, um, <clears throat> and you worked with armed guards at your back. Um, because if you, if you in any way did anything to, or it, left anything out of the bag, you had a $10,000 fine, and you had 10 years in the federal hotel in Atlanta. It was not the Henry Grady, <clears throat> which was the big hotel in those days. 
it wasn't. It was the federal, no, the federal penitentiary. Mm-hmm. So you kept it everything yourself. <clears throat> By that time, I was made of sterner stuff. But my friend, uh, whose name I shall not mention, uh, went completely haywire. And uh, they, of course, they had the usual naval inquiry, and they they put him in a. They take note of the old houses there um, with these great big French windows, and they turned them into and part of the naval hospital there. And he took a flying jump one day and went straight through the window. It fortunately was on the first floor. <clears throat> and of course, you don't jump through plate glass windows without making considerable noise. And um, they found him lying, bloodied, and all outside. And they, I don't know how many stitches they took, they spent hours stitching him up. And he survived. And then they had another naval inquiry, the second one. <clears throat> and it was a very interesting inquiry. They decided they'd made a mistake which was obvious to everybody but them. <clears throat> and um, they, uh, they retired him honorably on a medical discharge. After he tried to kill himself, they finally caught on that he was not up to par. But the point was, the fellow was a fine Christian fellow. <clears throat> he was excellent. He was an excellent scholar. He was doing good work. And, um, but what we found at the, in, in this particular subterranean deal uh, would blow your mind. Uh, considerably about Pearl Harbor, that it was uh, known <clears throat> that the president knew it, that he he had uh, planned for it, and the date, the documents were dated, beginning in July 1939. I think the date was 29th or 25th, I forget which, but I don't know if this has been declassified or not. Under the Nixon administration, they started to declassify <clears throat> the Pearl Harbor, but the, the, the Pearl Harbor documents, but there were I don't know how many there were them, but I know that when the when the commission made its report to Congress, they had ten million words and ten thousand pages of documentary material, and uh, you have some idea. And, and that didn't begin to scrape the material because I looked and the stuff that was in there, uh, the, the material I worked with was not there. Where it wasn't, where it is now, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Even uh, I suspect maybe. Some of the politicos may have destroyed it if they could have, because it was so damaging. Uh, I was made of sterner stuff, and by that time, I guess I was used to the hierarchy. <clears throat> so the result was that I, I survived nervously. Uh, my friend didn't. He is now all right, I might add. Uh, he recovered and went back to teaching where he should have been left. That's just an introduction for my background, this course. <clears throat> I originally started majoring in constitutional history. I did my dissertation in constitutional history. I studied under two of the three most famous constitutional historians this country's ever had. St. George Lee Consusset III was one of them, and he was a, a very, very great man. And Dr. H. V. Ames IV was the other one. They all had a lineage which they of which they're very proud. Dr. Ames was president of the Mayflower Society of America <coughs> and was quite happy at that. I don't blame him. And he looked like John Winslet, as if he just walked off the boat. <clears throat> so that um, my early training was in constitutional history. At the same time, I majored in church history under a very noted authority who was an atheist. <clears throat> but he wanted Calvinists on his faculty. And um, so we got along very well. Uh, he respected us. Now that's my pedigree, such as it is. And I hope I have not discouraged you.
because now, now I want to begin a discussion with you looking up to the election now you can understand the current discussions such as they are concerning elections unless you know the history let me put it another way unless you know the nature of the American heritage I listened to Mr. Como last night or was it uh, it was the one night this week it was last night <coughs> Mr. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the governor of New York who gave the what he thought was the exposition yeah. of the Roman Catholic view um, he said that he, his bishop didn't agree with him which would be obvious <coughs> he said he respected his bishops I, I was impressed with the amount of respect he paid them after saying he respected the bishops he then went off on a tangent and uh, very politely said that uh, privately he agreed with them but as a politician he couldn't uh, which leads to an equanimity uh, my position would be if he agreed with them privately he should agree with them publicly because I'm agree with the bishop the bishop not him when Mr. Mondale set forth to uh, say that God is a Republican <coughs> according to Mr. Rager uh, that leads considerable doubt in my mind as to the uh, knowledge which Mr. Mondale has in writing history uh, considerable doubt and um, when you read or when you hear uh, the men Ted Koppel and others of similar ilk discuss it on TV or read the Atlantic Constitution <clears throat> which I sometimes do read uh, when I'm waiting for a plane and I've reduced to sheer desperation <clears throat> or more frequently I read the Shalom Observer every morning because the only newspaper we have is Falls right? Falls I should say it's a huge town of 22,501 people and that's, I know the sheer magnitude of the size will overwhelm you who live in a little puny place like Atlanta first um, we have to depend upon the Shalom Observer or uh, Good Morning America <clears throat> And well, I'm not entranced by the Charlotte Observer. I'm less entranced by Good Morning America. Uh, so uh, so uh, I do read the Charlotte Observer, and I'm daily confused by that same paper. I'm confused by much of the literature which I see, by the official pronouncements of General Assembly, um, Methodist conferences, Baptist associations, and whatnot. I'm not going off the Baptist. I mean, pressure is just as bad. Well, I don't blame you. Now, <clears throat> the textbook for the course is this. Now, I admit this is my own book, and I don't like to parade my own book. <clears throat> I'll force you to read it, but there's no other book like it, which may or may not be good. In its defense, I would say that this is the second edition. <clears throat> the first edition went through nine printings, and it came out in 1964, and by 1980, it needed updating. And so the publishing company informed me that they were out of the ninth printing. They were gone. They had nothing left. And, and I had known that because people write to me and say, can we get copies of the book? And there was none to be, none to be obtained. It was, it was all sold out. So I put a 60, I put 70 additional pages in. I used a better index and a large bibliography. And it came out in the second edition. The second printing of that is now gone or almost gone. I'm not sure which. They're supposed to let me know this month. So that <clears throat> it's gone through 12 printings, which is not too bad uh, for a book. And so, with due modesty, 
uh, I do suggest that you buy it, or at least get a copy of it to took a crook if you don't want to buy it. Um, now you might want to look at a little book <clears throat> called The Church and the Sword out there. Um, I did that with Commander Russell Evans, who was a retired uh, Coast Guard commander, who had active service during the war, both in the Coast Guard and the U.S. Navy. <clears throat> he was a commander of a destroyer, and uh, the result is he had a great deal of naval and military information which he could get, and I used it, and he used the historical material well, and um, we did it together. He used my material and somebody's own, and it's a shorter book called The Church and the Sword. It's a study of the military, <coughs> of the effect of the National Council of Churches and the Methodist Church, the Method, the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Churches, the United Church of Christ, and the Northern Baptist Convention on military unpreparedness. It's been highly praised by Senator Jeremiah Denton and other people of summer standing. Uh, it's a shorter book, much shorter, but it covers the essential points of the infiltration of liberalism <coughs> into the situation. Now, this, this will be the textbook, and uh, uh, right now I'm going to introduce you to the, the, the basic meaning of the First Amendment. The First Amendment, for our purposes, has two clauses. That Congress shall not establish any religion, nor in any way interfere or abridge the liberty uh, and the right uh, to have one's religion. Now that statement <coughs> has a great deal of meaning. And the meaning of it is to be found in the debates in the first Congress, which met in 1789 and 90, in the Annals of Congress. Uh, the Annals of Congress is a publication which is the forerunner of the present congressional record. The, the, the record that the minutes of the speeches in Congress went through three developments. Until 1835, it was known as the Annals of Congress. At that time, it became known as the Congressional Globe because Andrew Jackson awarded the contract for publishing it to the editor of the Washington Globe. <clears throat> so it simply became another globe with the globes. And, and during the war between the states, it became known as the Congressional Record. And that is the title on which it goes today. But there's <clears throat> also another source to know exactly what the, what the, 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 uh, the men who wrote the Ten Amendments had in mind. And that is what's called Elliot's Debates. Elliot's Debates on the Federal Constitution, which is in four volumes. <coughs> it, it contains the, the debates in the Philadelphia Convention. It contains the debates in the 13 ratifying conventions. It contains the debates in the first Congress much more fully in regard to the meaning and the intent and the nature uh, of the First Amendment. Uh, I do not understand why Mr. Mondale is in such confusion as the meaning of the First Amendment. I do not understand why the editors of the Atlantic Constitution don't conserve Elliot. I can't believe they don't know it exists. And it is certainly available in Emory University Library and other libraries of like sign. <coughs> what I'm saying then is that the meaning of the First Amendment is readily available. 
there's no no question about it. It's also discussed in the writings of James Madison, of course, who was the man who had most to do with the actual phraseology of the first ten amendments. A member of the Solitic, of the first Congress in Virginia, as well as the Solitic Convention, uh, he left no doubt to what he had in mind, and the other members of the first Congress left no doubt what they had in mind. These things are not mysteries. <coughs> it's simply a matter of being willing to read and to understand what is very clear, and what down the recent times was very clear to members of Congress. And when the Supreme Court was a Supreme Court, and not a group of misunderstood, misled, and befuddled sociologists, the court can understand. There's no mystery. The First Amendment <clears throat> clearly forbade Congress to have an established state church. And the reason for that was this, that just before the War for Independence, um, the Bishop of London and the Anglican Church, who had neglected the colonies from 1628 until 1774, suddenly decided they should have an, an, a, a colonial episcopate, which is to say they would have bishops for the colonies in the Anglican Church named by the, uh, the, the, uh, the Anglican Church in England. And the colonies decided they didn't want that. Now that has been one of the, <clears throat> that has been one of the, of the reasons for the war for independence, which has never been widely circulated. But Bernard Balin, uh, a great American historian, wrote a book on it called the Mitre and the Scepter, <clears throat> in which he, he pointed this out, that a great deal of discontent was raised, not only in New England, where the Puritans were strong, but in, in Virginia. The Virginians didn't want an established church. The South Carolinians didn't. The North Carolinians didn't. The Middle States didn't. So <clears throat> when they got around to writing the Constitution, North Carolina, Virginia, Rhode Island, New York, demanded a Bill of Rights. <clears throat> now you see, that's four states. And for the Constitution to be effective, there had to be the vote of at least um, nine states. That made the decision very much in doubt. So, <clears throat> they agreed to have a Bill of Rights. And they agreed that the first of the Bill of Rights would deal with freedom of speech and freedom of religion. <clears throat> now note, the first or the whole of the Bill of Rights are a restriction on the powers of Congress. And by meaning that, <clears throat> that the, the, uh, the framers of the Bill of Rights meant the entire federal government. It's not just Congress, it's the Supreme Court. It's the President. Neither the President by himself, Congress by itself, nor the Supreme Court by itself can erect a state church. Neither can they involve themselves in religious affairs. They cannot prevent the free exercise thereof, meaning religion. <clears throat> this is why the Supreme Court in the Bob Jones case was a way, way, way off base. There is no constitutional, there's no legal, and there's actually no traditional support for that case. Now, I haven't asked the question, believe me, I'm not going to ask this question until the last part of this course. I'm, I don't mean to say I won't uh, be on the road, but the final answer will come later. And tonight, I'm simply giving you a preview, and I'm laying the groundwork for what I'm going to say. Now, incidentally, I meant to tell you, I do not mind questions. Uh, my um, my uh, 
the four victims whom I spot here are, uh, are quite uh, well aware that I do not mind questions. I don't hold them against you. I don't regard them as foolish. And I will do the best with my limited knowledge to try and answer them. And if I don't answer, because I don't know the answer. Uh, yes, sir. I meant the tax extension. That was, I meant, I just assumed you knew the Bob Jones case. Bob Jones University. <coughs> I'm not saying now whether I agree or whether I don't agree with what Bob Jones is doing. But they had the right to do it. Yes, sir, Dennis. You may be playing covering this, but when talking about the First Amendment here, we're talking about the Congress not being able to uh, start an established church. Was there the right of any state to do that? Good question. <clears throat> you will note that the First Amendment is a set of ten restrictions on Congress. They are not on the state. <clears throat> if they had been, the Constitution would never have been passed. After all, there is such a thing as state sovereignty. And the sovereign states created the Federal Union. The Union is the service of the state. You might know, in my political theory, I am a devout follower of John C. Calhoun and Alexander H. Stevens. I'm an unreconstructed 1860 Democrat. That's why I vote Republican. But I am convinced, after many, many years of study, that their position is the correct position. Now, <clears throat> there is no prohibition on the state as to the establishment of religion. And the answer is very simple. When the Constitution was written, at least nine of the states had some form of state support for the churches. In Connecticut and Massachusetts, they paid the salaries of the clergymen. In uh, Virginia, the Anglican Church was the favored church. In South Carolina, the, the, well, the Anglican Presbyterian churches were favored uh, because the Huguenots and the Scotch-Irish were devout Presbyterians and they were about equal to Anglicans in power in the state. <clears throat> in New York, the Dutch Reformed Church. In New Jersey, the Dutch Reformed Church. In Pennsylvania, the Scotch-Irish and the Quakers. And Maryland, <clears throat> strangely enough, it was between the Puritans and the Roman Catholics. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was very powerful in Maryland under the Carroll family, a very honored and esteemed and revered family. And there was a large populace of Britons in, in uh, Maryland. And so it gets. The only state where there's no real tie was Rhode Island, which was controlled by the Baptists. And being controlled by the Baptists, <coughs> while th there was no support of the church, it was nicely arranged that only Baptists held office. Um, but that's very, that's just an informal agreement. So the let me make this final point, and I'm going to go back. It was, it, was, it was the consensus of all the members of the Philadelphia Convention, the State Ratifying Convention, <coughs> and the members of the First Congress, that Christianity would be the religion of the new nation. They never dreamed for a moment that it would not be. Now, if Congress was not allowed to have a union of church and state, there was no prohibition on having a union of theology and political theory and practice. Do you follow me? In other words, <coughs> there's, there's, there's absolutely no reason why President Reagan cannot voice his expressions at a presidential prayer breakfast. 
<coughs> there's absolutely no reason why Christmas cannot be celebrated in, in, the, in the public schools nation. Absolutely none. There's absolutely no reason for not having a manger scene in City Hall Square in, in Podunk Center. <coughs> and Podunk Center happens to want or Paducah, Kentucky, or, or Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or New York City. There's absolutely no reason for not to have Christmas carols sung in the public schools. None at all. There's no legal reason, there's no constitutional reason, there's no traditional reason, there's no reason, period. I'm not trying to offend anybody here tonight. I am trying to make you think. I am trying to show you the truth. I'm, I don't speak things like I have done. I might also say, incidentally, that I am a radio commentator for an ABC outlet for Central North Carolina. WSAT, your family radio, 1280 in Salisbury, North Carolina. <clears throat> I've done it for 22 years, and they haven't thrown me off yet. Uh, I am on, I'm on the air, morning and evening, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, 8.35 in the morning, 6.20 in the evening. I'm on tape, I'm a wire, and then I have a call-in program on Tuesdays from 1.5 to 1.35 when they call in questions such as like you ain't never seen or heard everything else I express their opinion and serve a free for all I have to be on my really on the alert so I'm very careful what I say I had wondered about your uh, support of uh, John Calhoun and uh, view of his support of the uh, Central Bank well um you must remember that the central bank in his day was not the central bank of the day. Many people ever looked at that fact. You see, in his day, the country was had somewhere around 3,500 wildcat banks. I don't know by the exact number, and they each print their paper money. And this is a little bit true. To go back and read the records, if you go to a town like I mentioned, Paducah, Kentucky, that's a good place to begin with, and you'd have the first state bank of Paducah, Kentucky. It would be charming. And it might have $2,000 worth of cash involved, on basis of which you could print $50,000, $100,000 worth of paper money. Now, when you get $100,000 of paper money with $2,000 cash reserve, you're in for trouble. And this was true all over the country. Uh, and it was sheer chaos and uh, uh, the result was that um, uh, as you may remember when they, they, in 1816 they charged the first bank in the United States now who, under, who was president when this was done? well it's not, not a fair question it was the last few months of James Madison's administration <clears throat> Monroe was elected in 1816 but he came in 18. 17. Now, Madison was a strict construction, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Calhoun was a strict construction, yes, he was. Although, he was not as strict at that time as Madison. <clears throat> These men realized that a central bank of some kind was necessary, but its powers were restricted. It was not, it was not the Federal Reserve type of federal, a central bank, but it did need, it was needed to, to put out a currency which could be accepted from instance. If you, let's say you were a merchant, or you were traveling, let's say, from New York to um, Ohio in 1816, and you had some beautiful notes, just beautiful notes, from the first state bank of, uh, of uh, New York City, just the prettiest things you can imagine, and you go out to uh, 
Bowling Green, Ohio, and you want to get in a hotel, and you give the, uh, the man at the desk uh, this beautiful paper money. He'd say, but where'd you get that stuff? I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't accept it. And, and it was very difficult. <clears throat> when the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad got rolling, it printed its own money that the conductors could accept. Because when you went to the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, you would go in, and uh, maybe you brought some money, let's say, from, uh, from some little town in Pennsylvania, and you want to get this Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. You know what you do? You go up to the up to the cash desk, and the man said, "Look, you got hundred dollars here. That's nice, but you see, we'll give you twenty-five dollars for it. And if you want to ride our train, you better take it." You see, my friend, it was utter chaos <clears throat> because at that time, the states had the uh, used the right to print their own currency, and that's to allow the state banks, well, that's the only kind there was, uh, to uh, to print its currency. And there was tremendous fluctuation in value. And also, when you have about 3,000 different types of banknotes in circulation, another great business flourish, counterfeiting. Because there was no American banknote company to, uh, to print the bank paper. You see my point? I'm not anti-government. I just believe in bringing the federal government back when it's historical limits. Now, yes, sir. This case just popped in my head. Maybe I thought about it a while, maybe I changed my mind about bringing it up. But Go ahead. I think it's interesting. Um, you probably have this at your fingers, but when the, uh, the Mormon Church had the trouble with the government, mm-hmm. and, uh, do you recall how <coughs> uh, the government uh, forced them not to yes. allow that was on the mission of What happened there? On the well, <coughs> see, Utah was, a, was, a, was created a territory under the Northwest Ordinance Act of 1787. Now, when Utah had the appropriate 60,000 settlers, which was the requisite number for becoming a state, they were told to call a state constitutional convention, which drew up a constitution. <clears throat> As a result, they drew up a constitution which did not outlaw the plurality of wives. Uh, and so they rejected, the federal government, the Congress rejected uh, the first state constitution and Utah did not get in. But they said, if you want to get in, you'll have to redraw your constitution to insist upon monogamy rather than polygamy. And so, with tongue-in-cheek, um, they redrew the constitution. But you see, the problem was that <clears throat> some of the Mormon bits already accumulated 10 or 12 lives, and, and the problem arose when you... Uh, when you, uh, you... You can't just throw up the 11 or 12 lives out in the gutter, and secondly, <clears throat> I can imagine what would go on mean the twelve wives when you did. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a real civil war. And so, <clears throat> once once the state was admitted, then they reinstated polygamy because you see, at that time, the state's rights concept held, and a, and, a, and a federal government could not intervene in what was regarded as a religious uh, situation, namely um, po- polygamy. But you see, as long as the territory could and did. Does that your question? I just want to say to the Mormons, I'm glad they did it the way they did it. I just want to say if they raised a big fuss and the census said, well, the federal, what, what position would we take if that was a high issue now? Well, would we say there's anything to the point that the federal government sees or shouldn't come in? The technical point is this, that a territory, unlike a state, is a creation of Congress. In other words, a territory 
becomes a territory when it has uh, 5,000 people within a given geographical area. That's under the Act of 1787. <clears throat> now, between that time, when, uh, when it's a recognized territory with an appointed territorial governor, and the time when it has 50,000 inhabitants and is uh, allowed to uh, create its own government under the Act of 1787, uh, during that period of time, whatever t- time it takes, that territory is under the control of Congress, and Congress may legislate for a territory in a way it cannot legislate for uh, a state. In other words, the, the, uh, Congress has much more power over territory than it does over a state. And the Constitution was speaking, Congress was within its rights, uh, since it was not a, since it was a, a, a territory. Congress did exercise its powers over Puerto Rico, for instance that it could no, not exercise over a state. It still does. Over the, I, my, one of my friends was governor of the Samoan Islands <coughs> for a while, and, and um, that's quite an experience. Uh, have you been there? Yes. <laughs> I can see what it would be in the Well, he told me <coughs> he had to do things weren't in the book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I saw you laughing. I figured you must have been in Samoa. Yeah. I think like one side of the <coughs> Mm-hmm. He off the other side. Did, did you, where, when were you there? Oh, uh, four months ago. Oh, were you? This man's not there now. He was Earl Ruth from Salisbury. He was governor of the, of the Samoan Isles. He was doing some work down in the uh, Dominican. Oh, okay. Down on Hayden's side. Yeah, I know what it is. It's similar to the same mm-hmm. situation. The issue today, in its simplest terms, is this. Is there such a thing as the American religious heritage, or is there not? Or, to rephrase, was America basically a religious nation, a Christian nation, or was it not? <clears throat> there are three answers to that question. Practically all political, social, and economic liberals deny there was ever a Christian nation. I suppose in his own interesting way, the one exception was Jimmy Carter, who sort of tugged on both positions at the same time. Um, but, uh, of course, Carter was never consistent, and so we probably shouldn't hold him up as an example. But uh, <coughs> he, he was something of an, of an exception to what I said. <coughs> Almost all liberals are of the opinion or the conviction <coughs> that we never were a Christian nation. <coughs> There's a group, a small group, but pretty vocal, uh, who call themselves a new evangelical. This group <coughs> holds, yes, there, w- uh, there was a, a, a Christian heritage for a short time, but it disappeared in the colonial period. Therefore, we are no longer a Christian nation. They have come out so far as the president is concerned, to agree with liberals. The most notable example of this is Mark Hatfield. Although he's not entirely consistent, but George Marston, Richard Perrard, hey, strike this off the record, <coughs> Mark Knoll, and others of this group uh, attack the idea that we have a Christian heritage, and sometimes both separately. There's a third group, and this is composed of historic 
traditional Roman Catholic <coughs> and and uh, Protestant of various uh, uh, ecclesiastical uh, membership who hold that we do have a Christian heritage and that it is to be preserved and that this election is a critical moment when uh, it will be decided whether we shall or shall not preserve it. In other words, <clears throat> this election is, is in, many, in the eyes of many people, will be determining whether that Christian heritage shall be a viable heritage or whether it shall be hung up in a historic museum to be gazed upon and then forgotten. That, this is the issue as I see it, with these three possibilities. What was the second one? I call it the position of the Neo-Evangelicals. You mentioned George Marston? <coughs> yes. Is that the name from Calvin County? Yes. He wrote a chapter for a book to which I contributed, in which he did this very thing. Are you familiar with him? Sorry. Yeah, well, Papa George was not that way. Now, <clears throat> the question is, before the house, do we have such a Christian heritage, such a Christian legacy, and of what is it composed? I shall try to use the rest of our time to answer this question. <clears throat> Let me begin by giving a resounding yes to answer that question. There is a Christian heritage. <clears throat> it is written indelibly in our law books. It is written indelibly in our traditions. It is written indelibly in our constitutional heritage in our legal heritage and no man who becomes president can dismiss it with a wave of the hand and say it ain't so <clears throat> now why do I say this? well let me give you a brief history incidentally this is sort of funny in 1981 <clears throat> I was uh, uh, I was called by the Attorney General of the state of Kentucky to give a deposition before that high tribunal, well, before before the Attorney General, uh, to um, uh, to give support to the Kentucky law providing for the uh, uh, for the uh, uh, having the Ten Commandments clearly and permanently posted in each classroom. <coughs> Three of us were given asked to give. Uh, deposition. Uh, R.J. Rushdeny of California <clears throat> and a very, very fine Roman Catholic priest from um, the University of Louisville who was the head of the, of the education department there. He was shocked <clears throat> and I gave the third one. Um, by the time, I, should, I have to admit this, by the time uh, I got there, the attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union was punched drunk. If anybody knows R.J. Rushdeny was in high gear. <clears throat> He, uh, the attorney had, had a hard I mean the attorney had, had a hard time and he had not yet recovered when they brought this Roman Catholic with Priestin who was the professor of education <clears throat> and he told me afterwards what he said and I could tell that he had had a tremendous effect upon the attorney because the attorney didn't know what he was come or gone and um, what he asked the attorney was this very interesting the ACLU attorney said <clears throat> he said oh, suppose your little girl you have a little girl that was in the public school and Another student stole her purse. What would you do? 
and he said, I get awfully angry. And he said, I go to the authorities. And, and the instructor said, well, why would you? If religion is no place in the public school, <coughs> and obviously, <coughs> uh, there's no such thing as that. Suppose you have a daughter 15, and a, a, a senior tried to rape her who might be a sophomore junior in high school. He said, I, well, he said he gets very angry. I said, well, why would you? <coughs> he said, if there's no religious, uh, no religion to be taught, no religious uh, heritage, he said, why do you get upset? And um, the, first, the, the, the lawyer had absolutely no answer. I went in there, <coughs> and they asked me to give the historical uh, resume to prove we had this heritage. And um, I started off, as I shall start off, <coughs> with the Magna Carta <coughs> and the Constitutions of Clarendon and early English documents. And uh, I started off, and I realized the Lord kept looking at me, <coughs> and he, he just kept looking at me. And I realized he didn't understand a word I was saying. He's a graduate, I think, of Yale Law School. And I said, finally, I said, do you understand what I'm talking about? He said, no, frankly, I don't. And then, but the Attorney General overruled to keep on going. And uh, I could see the Attorney General sort of holding himself in. And, uh, <coughs> and finally, we got up to, to uh, uh, oh, uh, 18th century English. Well, I said, oh, yes, I'm beginning to see. By that time, I'm only going through seven centuries. <coughs> and, uh, <coughs> and and finally I got up to I went through English common law and all the developments there and finally uh, after I'd done this for about oh, 35 40 minutes the, the attorney said no it's all, it's all we need Mr. Singer I'm pulling this uh, deposition to a halt and he said now to the lawyer he said uh, would you care to um, uh, cross examine the witness and I expect to have a long grueling time he got up and around the room <coughs> literally ran out the room and I, I looked at the attorney general I said what have I done wrong because I thought I was in for trouble <coughs> and he, he was laughing and I said well what did I, what did I do he said you didn't do anything except thoroughly confuse him <coughs> I said uh, when a lawyer knows he's lost his case he gets up and runs down the room he retreats as fast as he can and of course the, the Kentucky Supreme Court did uphold it but the United States Supreme Court, without reading that position, refused to hear the case and left it, and, and set it aside from the circuit court. Uh, but the, <clears throat> in that decision, we had the loyal support of Roman Catholics. I don't know about the whole hierarchy, but certainly the University of Louisville was right behind us in the thing. <clears throat> and um, that's, that's the answer to that problem. Now, <clears throat> what is our heritage? Do we have a heritage? Yes. First of all, <clears throat> we have a legal heritage. I'm not familiar with the civil code and the criminal code of North Carolina, of, of, of uh, Georgia, but I do know that in chapter 17 of the common law codification in the state of North Carolina, you have a complete reiteration of the Ten Commandments. This is also true in Virginia, it's true in South Carolina, it's true in Maryland, <clears throat> it's true in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, New York, and the New England states. Which is to say, the common law is the fabric of our legal system. Now, what, what does this mean? <clears throat> During the Middle Ages, there were two systems of law, <coughs> particularly in England. 
with which we're concerned. There was the canon law, which was being developed in Rome for the most part, although the, <coughs> the papacy uh, used the, the lawyers trained by the University of Bologna, which was the most famous law school in the Middle Ages, and it turned out uh, excellent lawyers. Uh, alongside that, but different from it, in England, was <coughs> the development of English common law. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that canon law and common law were totally opposed. I'm saying they were different. The canon law was largely designed to provide, shall we say, the legal and the administrative uh, structure for the church. Um, what the bishops can and cannot do, what the clergy can and cannot do, and so on and so on, uh, which is perfectly legitimate. The common law, <coughs> as it developed in Great Britain, is very important. When William the Conqueror conquered England in 1066, he subjugated the whole feudal structure in England to himself. Uh, but by 1100, there began to develop in England as, as what we call common law. Now its origins are biblical. The common law was, was biblical. But, but it's a uh, structural aspect. Note what I'm saying. As it provides for church structure, <coughs> it was de derived largely from Roman law. Uh, Roman law provides a structure for the Roman church. <coughs> the scriptures provide the moral, ethical uh, uh, content of, of canon law. See that distinction? I should have said that before. Is that what you want to get down? Yeah, I wanted to say it. Yeah. Now, <coughs> In England, that was not the case, to, to, in the same sense. The, the, the common law was feudal law, and feudal law was based upon the scriptures. The, the feudal law was the first form of the governmental legal system in Great Britain, in England. But Henry the First, 1100 to 1137, and Henry II, 1154 to 1181, provided the court system framework <coughs> to a degree. There had already been local courts, but they were run by the feudal barons. If you were if you were a Duke of Somerset, in Somerset you had your own court, and you decide the law according to your own life. If you were the Duke of Wales, you did the same thing. A Duke of uh, North Anglia did the same thing. East Mercia did the same thing. But in in the reign of Henry the First, he he instituted a system of appellate courts, or they were called the the courts of Peter, the courts of Justice. By which we mean that he set up itinerant justices who held circuit courts all over England and each of the main parts of England to which <coughs> injured parties could appeal. If, if your duke or your baron gave a decision against you as one of his peasants or his landholders, you had the right to appeal with the next session of the court. Now these justices, <coughs> these justices administered the court of the king's bench, the central court, all over England. And the, their decisions gave England a common law, common sense that <coughs> the decisions were made all over England according to the law as it was interpreted in London. 
Now that law was built up on content. So that the English common law became not in every type, jot, and tittle, not in every provision, but the Ten Commandments and the Scriptures furnished the background for the whole of the common law and its application. Derived from Scripture, with its structure being somewhat determined by the feudal government of England, with the, the barons, the counts, the dukes, and then ultimately the king. But the king had a central court, known as the Court of King's Bench, which was a kind of supreme court for that day. <clears throat> and, and you could make your final appeal to that court. Now, <clears throat> in the famous Magna Carta of 1066, this was started, but in later decisions, the Constitution of Clarendon, and ultimately, in a very famous uh, act, known as the Magna Carta, this, <clears throat> this common law <clears throat> of England was made much more secure. The background, of course, was the controversy between the Pope Innocent III and John of England, uh, and, uh, and the attempt of John to recover the provinces in France. And he'd levied taxes on the barons, and the barons revolted. <clears throat> now, so that John was brought to bay by the barons at Runnymede and forced to sign the Great Charter, the Magna Carta, which reiterated the limitations of power in previous documents, the judicial system, and bound the, the barons to observe the central judicial system. And, and in essence, was a reaffirmation of the biblical content of English common law for the whole kingdom. This result was also aided by a very famous English jurist, uh, John of Salisbury, who lived in the little town of Salisbury, from which my hometown gets his name. <coughs> and he wrote a book uh, on the law of England which is a magnificent statement of case in which John of Salisbury, uh, an ardent believer, although he was not, he was not a, a, a high in the church, ecclesiastical speaking, but a very ardent believer and a great student of law, set forth a whole basis of English common law. Again, emphasizing its Christian uh, content and importance. Without going into all the detail, <coughs> because I, don't, I want to get into the American side, this development kept taking place in England, and of course, in, the, in, in 1689, at the time of the Bloodless Revolution, uh, the Parliament issued the famous Bill of Rights. John, has you nothing to say? Uh, I was going to say you might comment on the theme about the time Oh, yes, well, that's true. <coughs> you may remember when Elizabeth died, she died without child, which threw the question of the English throne wide open. <coughs> now, James VI of Scotland was her cousin. His mother was Mary Queen of Scotland. Um, she was Roman Catholic. He was Protestant. <coughs> and under the, under the Act of Supremacy of 1534, the successor to of the throne had to be a Protestant. Therefore, James became James I of England. 
The word stubborn does not adequately describe his character. Stubborn men can be moved. Uh, James couldn't be. Even when he was right, which is blessedly true, sometimes he was right. But right or wrong, nothing doing. <clears throat> he, he got in trouble with Parliament. And um, uh, as you know, he, uh, he died in 1625, and his son Charles I came in. And by that time, the Puritans had arisen to power in England. Um, and uh, they were in the control of the situation. <clears throat> and Charles continued his father's unwise policy, but he was more stubborn and, and lacked his, his uh, father's sense and lacked his father's character. And of course, in 1629, the long parliament began, the result of which was the famous Cromwellian Revolution, which opened in 1643. <coughs> this had a tremendous effect upon English law because the Puritans, who had become a force in the 1570s at the Cambridge University under Thomas Cartwright, were almost all, they all dealt with the law in one way or another. And one of the great exponents, of course, was Samuel Rutherford, who wrote Lex Rex uh, to to show forth the relationship between the kingdom, that, that is the, the political state on the one hand, and the law of God on the other. You ought to read that book. It's been republished <coughs> uh, just recently. I forget by what publishers, but it's there to get. If you really want to know political thinking, Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex is a tremendous book on the biblical position in regard to church and state. Lex, L-E-X. L is an R-E-X Rex. In English, it's Law and King. <clears throat> Pardon me? What about him? Oh, yes. They, uh, Henry put him to death. Who? Yeah, see, Thomas More was one of the most gifted writers of the Renaissance. <coughs> he wrote some very excellent material uh, in Praise of Folly and uh, some other books, uh, uh, but was a, a very, he was an able statesman. In fact, he was Chancellor of the realm under Henry VIII, which means he was the, he was the Attorney General, so to speak. But, but, uh, when Henry divorced, or uh, wanted to divorce Catherine, uh, Thomas More took an extremely dim view of that situation. As a matter of fact, it was so dim that he issued an injunction against him. And that displeased Henry. Uh, because he long grown tired of Catherine, and in the meantime he got Anne pregnant. And uh, Thomas More refused to take note of such sad problems, <coughs> and refused to grant the divorce. And uh, of course, Thomas was backed up by, uh, by Charles V of, Eng of Germany. Uh, Catherine, you see, was the aunt of Charles V of Germany. <coughs> and Charles, who was a pretty good man anyway, took, well, he was very upset extremely upset, extremely upset when Henry wanted to divorce his aunt. As a matter of fact, he was so upset that he told the Pope, Clement VII, that if he did divorce Catherine of Aragon, it would be the last act he did on earth. And to reinforce that position, he marched down and put the Pope in prison to show that uh, Charles was not given the judgment. Of course, he put Francis I in the same prison. Um, he was the height of his power. <clears throat> and so, so, um, under those conditions, uh, 
some percent got extremely moral, even though he was from the Medici, and decided he could not grant a divorce. It just wasn't right, because he had to sort his throat. And uh, as a result, <coughs> Cranmer, a very brilliant, at that time, a time-serving politician in the church, uh, going through the law books, found out that Julius II had uncanonically married Henry and Catherine. <coughs> because uh, Catherine had been uh, betrothed to um, Henry's older brother, who Arthur, who had died. And so what Cranmer did was not to divorce them, as the textbook say, but he granted an annulment, which saved the embarrassment of divorce. And it earned a Cranmer's promotion to Archbishop Canterbury, and it earned um, a Catherine's early retirement social security <coughs> and, and elevation to the Queen of uh, But Sir Thomas More was put to death for his uh, position in regard to this whole matter. One of the most brilliant men of his day. Some might say the most brilliant. I'm not going to argue that one way or the other. But he certainly was a towering giant intellectual. <coughs> it was sad, but it happened. Now, <clears throat> the rise of the Puritan movement was a, was a tremendous impact upon the biblical content of English thought. Uh, <clears throat> if I might use a term out of context, and certainly out of historical context, I would say the Puritans were very close to being the theonomists of their day. They believed in the complete incorporation of, of biblical law into the actual civil and criminal codes of, of England. <clears throat> um, having given that English background, let us look at the American picture, shall we? Am I doing what you want me to do? See, I just can't go into today's picture. <clears throat> I'm a trained historian. I have to give the historical background. I feel as if I'm committing intellectual adultery if I don't, or intellectual murder or some other crime. It is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.